And welcome back to the Ambon. I'm Matt Ferreira. And I'm Ezra. And we're going to just hop right into it. Um, I first wanted to talk about some tweets I had seen recently. And it was about free agency and Carlos Correa, who's for until the lockouts will be the big fish on the market. Um, and I saw tweets about how we all know Correa wants that 10 year deal, or it's been rumored to want that 10 year, 12 year deal. But would he be willing to take a shorter term from four to seven years? And I could see the Cubs offering him a thing around that. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts on this before I dive deep into this. Just off the bat, the first thing that I can really think about is I remember that Correa, if you guys remember the last episode, we talked about him wanting a lot more than the Tigers were willing to offer. And maybe it's because it's the Tigers compared to the Cubs. So if the Cubs did offer him a shorter contract, maybe he would take it because he would rather play with the Cubs in Chicago with Stroman with that new rebuilding roster. We're yet to see how that's going to play out. But I just think that it's a little, I, I don't know if it's in character for Correa really to take that shorter deal from what we've seen in free agency talks so far. Yeah, I don't know how likely it is, but I found it interesting, especially with the Cubs just sending Stroman for three years. They have a lot of young talent coming up, so I know it would be interesting, especially with Horner and um, what's the other uh, shortstop they have? They just got – oh, Madrigal with them in the middle infield. Um, and got Schwindel and Wisdom all yeah. coming up into their – being able to really play at their, their best level recently – and guys that are still there, uh, we know Wilson Contreras can hit and he can play a great catcher. So it, it's interesting to see what Correa will do. But just from my from my point of view, I don't know if I can really see him taking that shorter deal. Yeah, I mean, hopping in, I want to hop into some numbers here, but I saw a tweet from Michael Sarami. Um, he tweeted, a few years ago, the Dodgers offered Bryce Harper a four-year $180 million deal. That would have paid him $45 million a year. If the Cubs are willing to go short-term only, maybe they can try something like this for Correa. That's a lot of money for just a few years. Injuries could totally screw with that. And I, I just don't know if the from a, from a business standpoint, that would be the best move for the Cubs, really, because you throw all that money in a very short period of time, that really slows you down in free agency talks for that time period. And maybe after we've seen stuff like Bobby Bonilla ruining some, some uh, financial talks for the Mets. And it's just, it's just a lot to take in and a lot to give away as an organization that quickly. Yeah. But I mean, like we said earlier, the uh, not looking Detroit's deal. If he did take a deal similar to that four year one eighty. He would re-enter the market at age 30 ahead of his age 31 season. And that's probably beneficial to him, but we've seen the trend. Guys like get really young guys, Wander Franco and Tatis are getting these huge contracts for almost two for a decade or more. Some contracts being almost a decade. I believe Acuna's was a nine-year deal. But these are just a lot of there's a, there's a trend towards these long, prolonged contracts, 11 years, 12 years, 13 years. We've seen the Mike Trout deal. It's half a billion dollars, and it's just for pretty much the rest of his career. And I feel like that's kind of what Correa feels right now he deserves. So I feel like that's more the direction he'll lean in. Obviously, it'll be interesting to see when the lockout re 
uh, is no longer locked out to see how those talks progress. Yeah, exactly. I thought it was just something interesting. I could see it being an option for Carlos Grave, especially if he's not getting the money that he wants or certain opt-outs that he wants or contract clauses or anything like that. I could see him taking a shorter-term deal and betting on himself. Yeah, I think it would be more of a of a fallback option for him. I don't know if I could really see him doing that as a first option, maybe more as a plan B or C, but uh, that that's just what how I see the situation going. And uh, moving right along, um, another free agent had just retired today, actually, Kyle Seeger, uh, Mariners third baseman. Yeah, um, Kyle Seeger is a fantastic player. I, we got to give him his, his due time, give him, give him his shout out. He had a great career, 11 years, all with the Mariners, a very loyal guy. And that's something that I really value in a player when I'm looking at his stats and see that he's played for one team his whole career. And obviously he's still kind of young. So it came as a bit of a shock to me this morning when I woke up and saw it on my phone playing 11 years, he's age 34. He's 34 right now coming off a little bit of a down year batting average wise, but he still put 35 bombs over the fence had 128 hits and 101 RBIs for a Mariners team that was really fighting for the playoffs. And it's just a little bit of a shock to see him call it a career this at this point. It was surprising to me. It seems like he stood a little bit left in the tank. It would be interesting to see him play with his brother, Corey, back in Texas now that Seager, uh, Corey Seager signed. It would have been interesting to see that. But, I mean, this opens up some money for Seattle. Uh, they paid him $18.5 million last year, so maybe they'll be on the market for a new third baseman once the uh, lockout ends. Yeah, and just looking through Corey Seager's career, just to to give him his his time. I mean, he finished in the top fifteen in MVP MVP voting in 2016, a one time All Star and Gold Glove winner, a Mariner legend for for me. Really, growing up, is he was really the first name that came to mind as a when you would think of the Mariners after legends like Griffey and Ichiro. And it was just right after there was Seager year consistently 20 home runs had 30 home runs in 2016 had 35 this past year, which was actually a career high for him and a career high in RBIs, a pretty decent season. Obviously the average wasn't exactly where he wanted it to be. The on-base percentage of course took a hit because of that, but he was slugging pretty well around his career average I uh, see that his OPS was still above 723 and his OPS plus was the league average of a hundred. And it's just, it, it, he just was a very in- integral part of that Mariners organization for such a long time. And it's really just a shame to see him, to see him retire, but obviously wish him the best being a dad and all that is a full-time commitment. And he seems ready to take on that next chapter of his life. Yeah, he's also a very durable player in Seattle. The only years he didn't play over 100 games were 2020, which was the shortened season where he played 60 out of 60 games, and 2011 in his rookie year where he only played 53. And, and in 2019, he played 106 games, but outside of that, he did not play less than 150 games in one season. You've got to you've got to give him his props for that. Between 2012 and 2018 he only 
the lowest amount of games he played in a season was 154. That's only eight games off in a season. And at, that was at the most. So you, you just got to give him the, give him the props that he really does deserve for being a really good player, a really loyal player and just a great guy, honestly. Yeah. All well-rounded player. Uh, moving along again, I found something on Twitter by Ryan Thibodeau um, at not Mr. Tibbs for those who want to check it out, but he has been taking all the hall of fame ballots that the, the voters have been tweeting out and in anonymous ones. And he's been putting them into a tracker. Um, and so I want to recap over the 90 ballots that are uh, known about right now. Um, currently, Barry Bonds, Roger Clemens, and David Ortiz would be the only players getting into the Hall of Fame if the voting ended today. With the very close names, let's talk about Scott Rowland at 71% and Schilling at 70%. They're right on the, they're on the doorstep knocking at the door of the Hall of Fame. Yeah, it's been going up and down. The other day, I think Roger Clemens and Barry Bonds weren't even um, – above the 75% mark, but they are back at 78.9%. Both of them are. And Ortiz leads right now with 82.2%. Like you said, rolling at 71.1% and shilling at 70% are right on that borderline getting in. And there's also some names on here that I'm looking through. And with the current ballots, it's honestly appalling to me guy that some of these guys are not getting the votes. I mean, Billy Wagner, one of the best relief pitchers of all time, only getting 50% of the votes right now. He's only got 45 votes out of the 90 available ballots. And that's just weird to me, considering he really, to me, should have been in years ago. He would need so many votes from the remaining ballots to get in and i'm really just i it's sad to see for me that he's not gonna that he's not really as close as i feel like he should be right now yeah one that surprised me on how far away they are from getting in is alex rodriguez um obviously has right now he has 46.7 percent of the vote which but since bonds and clemens and I guess you could throw Ortiz in there getting the quote unquote steroid guys are getting the percentage, like the votes to go in. I thought A-Rod would be up there too, considering he's got one of the best stat lines of all time for any player. Yeah, surely. And if you just move one spot over on the tracker to the left, you have Manny Ramirez, another guy who's been uh, held down so to say, by steroid use in his campaign for the Hall of Fame. He's on his sixth year on the ballot, but he only has 41% of the votes. And with the high amount of votes that Bonds and Clemens were getting and Ortiz, like you said, it's just a little weird to see them at such a low number. And back to Rodriguez, another reason that I think that he might be still a little bit lower is because uh, compared to Ortiz, another first ballot, uh, another first guy on his first ballot, Ortiz is less known as the guy that used steroids than Rodriguez is. And it's his first time on the ballot. We've seen that this is Bonds and Clemens last time on the ballot. And they have the same amount of votes right now, 71 out of the 90. 
to get in. And it just seems like you really need those years on the ballot for some reason. I don't really understand how people change their votes after a few years because the numbers stay the same for these guys. But just Rodriguez being a first on a, on his first ballot might be a reason for him being a little lower in the percentages. And going to another guy who I really think deserves the Hall of Fame spot on his fourth ballot is Todd Helton. He's got 56.7% of the votes right now. And a guy, another guy just like Billy Wagner that I feel like should be getting in should have been in earlier, but hopefully he can get his votes up. And I know we've talked about it before on previous episodes, so I won't batter you all with the same numbers that I that I have in the past, but it's just weird to me that guys like Helton and Wagner aren't getting the amount of votes that I really feel like they deserve. Yeah, another guy who's almost cracking 50% is Andrew Jones at 49 or 48.9%. Um he would need 82% of the votes remaining to get in. Houghton would need 80% of the remaining votes to get in. And looking farther in into these into these lesser voted for guys, I know you need 5% to stay on the ballot for the next year. And there's a lot of guys on here that probably won't get it. I mean, Lincecum, Joe Nathan, Mark Teixeira all only getting one vote at the moment and Tory Hunter with two. They're, obviously, there's definitely an argument for them not to be in the Hall of Fame. And, the, and Papelbon also has one vote. It's just interesting for me to see how few votes these guys are getting. Yeah, Tim Hudson barely stayed on last year with 5.2%, and he's sitting at 44 right now. So it'll be interesting to see if he gets to stay in. Um, yeah. to the Hall of Fame ballot. Burley also, Mark Burley also has 4.4%. Yeah, there's a lot of low percentages that I really wasn't expecting. I was expecting a bunch of guys to be around that, around that like 5 to 10% area, but there really aren't. The only one around that 10, there's only two guys, three guys, I think. Ah, oh, pardon me. Four guys. Uh in, in or around that area, Pettit and Abreu, both with 12%, Vizquel with 10 and Rollins, Jimmy Rollins also with 10 I know a, a guy that you had on your ballot, Matt, is only got nine of the 90 votes so far. So it's, it'll be interesting to see how these guys shape up and how the votes pan out for them in the future. The thing that I found interesting is Omar Vizquel, actually. They have, on the tracker, they have how many votes that a player has lost over the last year from voting and Omar Vizquel has actually lost 28 votes from voters and I found that interesting I know he had the domestic violence domestic abuse with his wife and I know that's probably taken a toll on his voting but it's just interesting to see how different the votes are year after year even though the numbers don't change yeah Vizquel has lost the most votes with negative 28 as the net and then gaining the most has been Scott Rowland and Todd Houghton with gaining six votes so far. Yeah, and both guys that I feel like have the numbers to get in the Hall of Fame. So we'll see how that all pans out. The voting, we still have a little bit of time. There's still a lot of votes still to be counted. So we'll see how 
how it all turns out. And we're going to segue quickly into our main attraction for, for this week. And it's going to be a trip down memory lane. Me and Matt, obviously huge baseball fans, been that way our whole life. And with the lockout, there's not a whole lot going on. There's little things here and there, like the Seeger retirement that we're going to, that we've talked about, but we're going to go and harp on our own personal experience as baseball fans. And we're starting off with the best players that we've ever seen live. And I'm just going to get this out of the way for everybody. Both of us have seen Mike Trout live. And yes, he is the greatest player we've seen play live. But we, we tried to do something a little different than that because that's the obvious answer. So the best player that I've seen play live just by a baseball standpoint has got to be Miguel Cabrera. And I've seen him play live a lot of times, actually. But a weird story about the first time that I saw him play live was my family went on a road trip to see lots of the stadiums. We went to Comerica to see the Tigers. We went to Wrigley to see the Cubs. And we hit a bunch of other stadiums on the way. We hit Toronto in that same trip. And when we saw Miguel Cabrera, he struck out in the first inning on a pitch well outside the strike zone and was tossed in the first ever time I got to see him. And I, the baseball purist, was pissed off because I went to see one of the greatest players of all time. This was fresh off of his triple crown season. And I was so ready to see the guy who was setting the world on fire play in his prime. And as soon as I got to see him play, he got tossed. And it was just so, it, it was heartbreaking really just to, to see that. But I of course did get to see him a few more times in my life in his prime still. And I'll actually talk about those later in later topics for today's conversation and matt who are the some of the other guys that you've seen play live the best you've ever seen so i would say the best person i've seen play live is probably i know it's probably gonna be a little bit of bias here but it's mookie Betts. i mean he was a red sox so i've seen him multiple times as many know he won an mvp in boston he's finished second twice in mvp voting he's a five-time gold glover He's won three silver, four silver sluggers. He's just one of the best overall players in the MLB in the past few years. He's won a batting title. He won overall defensive player of the year. He's gotten two World Series, one with the Red Sox, one with the Dodgers. He's just an all-around one of the best players. If you're going to compare anybody to Mike Trout in a conversation, Mookie Betts is a pretty gosh darn good guess. and. Speaking of Red Sox outfielders, I have another former Red Sox outfielder at the as my last best player I've ever seen live. And this is going to be a weird one for a lot of people, but I have some real reason for it. It's actually Mike Trout's lookalike, Hunter Renfro. And no, Hunter Renfro is not the best player ever. No, he's not the greatest. He just got traded, actually, from the Sox. But Hunter Renfro... If you're listening to this, which I probably, I don't think you are, but please give me tickets to all of the games you can possibly get me to because each of the last eight times I've seen you play live, you have hit a bomb. So please give me some free tickets. 
but that's why I had to include him on this list of best players I've ever seen live, because obviously he's not the best player I've seen live. I've seen trout. I've seen bets. I've seen Cabrera. I've seen guys like Victor Martinez play live. I've seen great pitchers like Jacob deGrom. You can't not just say he's one of the greatest. I've seen so many great players, Pujols even, but Hunter Renfro game in game out. Every time I see him live, he goes, yeah, yeah. So I had to include him on the list. Yeah, for me, for my other player, I actually went with the route of the best player I saw in their prime. And I saw in 2015, I drove up to Rogers Center with my family. I saw Josh Donaldson in his MVP season play with the Blue Jays. While he didn't have the best game when I was up there, he was once again the MVP of that year, led the league in RBIs, but the entire majors and runs. He had 41 bombs that year with 41 doubles, hit 300. He just had one of the best seasons, I think, in MLB history. Right when his first year in Toronto. So, yeah, that was that was a great year. And I do think that I saw him, I've seen him live a few times, but I never, I don't think I actually saw him in that 2015 MVP campaign. And honestly, it would have been a pleasure because the dude was just hitting the ball wherever he wanted, whenever he wanted to, except for apparently the game that you saw him play in. Uh, But that actually reminds me of another great player that I've, that I've seen play live. And that's the greatest boxer in baseball history. And that's Rufnet Odor. Just got to give him a shout. You get, you brought up the old school blue Jays. My mind went to Bautista and my mind going to Bautista brought up the greatest boxer, Rufnet Odor. So you just got to, sit back and watch that highlight over and over on repeat because whew, that was a mean hook. Yeah, I remember and, watching that game on TV, actually. Oh, it's surprising. Yeah, I actually remember my favorite part about that clip is if you pay close attention, you'll see Donaldson running from the side and he's just like a bull and just takes out like three guys in a row. Just hit him with was, his shoulder. It was a scene and a half, and it's something that I still love watching because it reminds me of how fun baseball can be even in a lockout. You just watch these old clips, these old fights. I know there's all of the Amir Garrett shenanigans a few years ago. Always fun to watch. And Yasiel Puig, too, taking on the entirety of the Pirates organization, it seemed like, behind home plate. Always some fun things to watch. And speaking of fun things to watch... Another part that we, another topic we wanted to cover today is the best moment we've ever seen live. And I actually have quite a few of them. And I'm going to start with Mike Trout again, because when you think of Mike Trout, I know a lot of people think of that one robbery at Camden Yards, where he jumps over the Southwest sign arm, full extension on the JJ Hardy blast to, to center field. And he just snags it out of the air it really skyrocketed him to fame really. And that catch I actually saw live. I was weirdly enough walking right on Utah street when it happened. And I was looking out, I heard the crack of the bat. JJ Hardy was up. He hit the ball to center field. And I just looked just over the side of the uh, big scoreboard in right field to see Mike Trout, just being Mike Trout and, achieving one of his greatest athletic 
feats by robbing that home run. It was really a sight to see. Obviously, it hurt a little bit for me as an Orioles fan, but it was just a pleasure to be able to see that live. Yeah, for me, one play that I will forever remember is in 2019, I went to opening day for the Boston Red Sox, and they were playing the Toronto Blue Jays, which they did lose 7-5. to But the one play I remember from that day vividly is with Ward Escario on third, Chris Sale was throwing it to home, and he straight stole home plate. It was one of the most insane things I've ever seen live. I was in shock for the next like three innings about how he actually stole home. And it's just something I feel like it, hap- it happens like not fairly often, but like once every like five years, I would say, or something like that. And yeah, it's right. still impressive every time. Oh yeah, for sure. Another another one of the experiences that I got to to see live, it wasn't actually one game. It was just the entirety of the Orioles 2014 ALDS. Those it wasn't exactly a moment, but I'm I'm putting it here because I was at game one of the Tigers Orioles 2014 ALDS, where the Orioles did something pretty incredible, honestly. Going into the eighth inning. It was tied at three to three. The O's had gone up two, uh, two runs in the first inning. And then obviously in true Orioles pitching fashion, gave up two runs in the second and then went ahead later in the second up to go up three to two. In the seventh inning, Orioles popped in another run, making it four to two, but then gave up a run in the ninth, in the eighth, I mean. And then in the bottom of the eighth, the Orioles just went off. Eight runs in the eighth inning of game one of the ALDS. I was there live sitting in the left field, upper deck, just got to see the whole thing. And oh my God, was Camden Yards bumping. It was an electric experience. It was just so fun to see runs crossing the plate, everybody losing their voices, screaming, shouting, getting so excited. We were just going to be a couple games away from the ALCS and then maybe from the World Series. Obviously, that didn't happen. But then I also went to the next game where, again, in the eighth inning, Orioles down six to three. Eighth inning against, uh, I believe it was Jose Valverde on the bump. And just another four runs across the plate. Place bumping again and it was just so fun to be there get to see that crazy moment and just to be an Orioles fan it was actually a happy experience at the ballpark which is something that obviously we've been sorely missing recently but hopefully we can get there again soon my next moment actually has a little bit to do with the Orioles Uh, I was at the game where the Red Sox set the franchise record for most wins in a season when they beat the Orioles 6-2 to in September of 2018 for their 106th win. And I remember the whole place going crazy in the ninth trying to get, because everyone knew the record was on the line. And seeing the graphic at home on Fenway Park scoreboards of 106 wins, new franchise record. It was one of those moments that, like, when you watch a team, you're like, they're going to win the world series. It was one of those things that you knew that this team was special. 
Yeah, of course, it's at the Orioles' expense. <laughs> it, it always seems to be at this point, honestly. But my last moment that I've seen live, again, not like one exact moment, but a few years ago, before the pandemic, the Orioles had a sandlot at the park night where after the the 7 o'clock, or the, yeah, I believe it was a 7 o'clock game. After the 7 o'clock game, they showed the sandlot on the big screen and you could watch from the field. And it was just surreal to get to see the greatest baseball movie of all time in what I believe is the most beautiful park in the in the nation. Getting to see... This getting to see Smalls and Benny the Jet just playing playing the game they love on the field that I grew up just idolizing as the greatest place on earth. It was just very fun to be able to see and to be able to sit on the field the whole time was just very cool for me, especially as a younger kid. Yeah, well, for my last moment, I will be going back to the same game board is scary. I was still home. Back to opening day for Red Sox in 2019. It's one, probably the, my favorite baseball moment I've ever seen live and will be for years. It was the 2018 ring ceremony. Watching Mookie Betts, Xander Bogarts, Rafael Devers get their ring. Julian Edelman was on the field, brought over a bunch of Patriots. It was the day the Lombardi Trophy got dented. Uh, it was a special day. I remember watching all the players come out and raise the 2018 championship flag in center field. And it was just something that I'll never forget. Yeah, that's that's got to be a really fun experience, especially, you know, having a pennant to hang must be nice. But moving on to the next to our next part is I think we're going to talk about our favorite memorabilia that we own. And I have a lot of things from a lot of different sports. I have a Saints pennant signed by Drew Brees and the rest of the roster. Obviously, I'm a Saints fan, so that means a lot to me. But we're talking baseball here. So the first thing that came to mind was actually, for me, a couple of things that I got the other day. My dad won them in an auction uh, pretty, pretty long ago but I never went and picked them up because I was like, why would I need to pick them up? Dad, you should probably go get them. But I picked them up the other day and it's a Adley Rutschman signed Orioles Jersey, which is very cool. But also from John means no hitter this past season. It's a signed picture of him celebrating on, on the field signed by John means it's just super cool. It's going to hang up in my room as soon as I get the means to do so. And I just thought that was that was the first thing that came to mind when I thought of the best memorabilia I own. Obviously, there's a lot more, and I'll get to those in a minute. But Matt, what uh, what was the first thing for you? So my first thing actually comes with an interesting story. I got it last year where I was sitting in my dorm room watching a World Series, and I'm just looking at my phone, scrolling through Twitter, and I get a DM. And I go to my messages, and it's from the MLB Twitter account. And I'm like, it was really confused. So I opened it up and they sent me a DM that said, we loved your tweet and and wanted to be a part of the World Series. So we printed it on a batting practice baseball and it's here for you. So the tweet I actually sent out was, I would love to see Mookie Betts win another World Series and MVP. So they actually took my tweet and printed it on a 
baseball that was used during batting practice at the World Series. He took a picture of it at the stadium in Texas and then sent me it. And it's in my room right now. And it's a weird piece of memorabilia, but it's my favorite thing that I own. That's got to that you might have got me beat by just story wise that's that's fun that i don't know if i can top that but i do have a few other things that came to mind another weird story one is when manny machado was first coming up in the o's organization i went and saw spring training that same year it was the year before he made his debut so he obviously wasn't wearing his i his his orioles 13 yet and I got a ball signed by Machado at spring training. Very cool. I waited in line for way too long for it, but it was definitely worth it because now I have a ball signed by Manny Machado with the number 88 on it. And it's obviously a little bit of a weird one, just like yours. Not quite as cool of a story because I didn't get to have a tweet hit around the yard in the World Series. But uh, having a Manny Machado signed ball with the number 88 instead of 13, it's a little bit of a weird one, but it's just cool. Yeah, I would, I would love to see that. That's interesting. My next piece has also got a story to it, actually. I was at a Dodgers game in Pittsburgh, which I will be talking about later on. But I'm sitting in the outfield, and I had earlier caught a home run ball from Curtis Granderson, and I was happy. But I was a young, like in my early teens, so I was greedy and wanted more baseballs, as one does. And I'm looking out into the outfield, and the pitchers are shagging BP, and you got Kenley Jansen throwing balls up. And Clayton Kershaw grabs the ball, and he's right next to me. And he turns around, and he's just, like, looking to see who he wants to throw to. And I see him throw it up into the stands, and it's probably, like, 10 people away from me. I'm like, oh, I wish that was me. I wonder who caught it. So I go to look who caught it, and it was actually my dad who caught it. So I have a ball in my room that Clayton Kershaw threw to my dad, and it's got no signature, just one scuff mark from the person who hit it. But it's one of my favorite things I have was one of the best pitchers of our generation. Yeah, that is pretty – that's pretty funny, just thinking, oh, no, I can't get the ball anymore. It's the Kershaw ball that he threw in there. And then it's like, oh – Hi, Dad, you have the ball that I wanted. And that, that is pretty fun. And another, going to another one of the, my favorite pieces of memorabilia is I have a, I have a ball signed by two Orioles legends at the same time, uh, Al Bumbry and Scott McGregor. And the, the story behind it is I was doing an Orioles baseball camp that year. I think I had to be six or seven years old. And I was just doing an Orioles baseball camp and the the guests were were Al Bumbry and Scott McGregor and they were just signing autographs and it was just very cool because I got to talk to them for a little bit obviously I was a child so I didn't really know what to say among Oriole legends both in the Orioles Hall of Fame but I have a ball signed by the both of them and actually in that same camp I got a t-shirt signed on the last day of camp by a future Cy Young winner by the name of Jake Arrieta Obviously, he was on the Orioles at the time, so he wasn't very good. There's a there's a running joke amongst Orioles fans that pitchers in the organization will leave and just become absolutely filthy, and that's mostly stemmed from Jake Arrieta because he left, won a World Series with the Cubs, won a Cy Young with the Cubs when he wasn't really the greatest with the Orioles, 
but I have a shirt, uh, an Orioles baseball camp shirt signed by him before he was actually the Jake Arrieta. And he was just like, Oh, it's Jake Arrieta. That's so funny. Yeah. Orioles pitchers always seem to do better in other spots, especially you look around, you got Arietta. Bundy was really good in Anaheim for a year or two. It's, it's a funny story to go along with it. My last piece actually is right behind me. I was able to go to the 100 years game for Fenway Park. Let me unhook it. And when they were giving it out, obviously, when, when we walked in, they were doing a world record for the biggest toast of all time, which was set by everyone in Park, which was around 37,000. But to everyone that came in, they also gave out a replica laminated ticket to the first ever game at Fenway Park on April 20th of 1912. And it has, on the back, it has the box score of each player in the lineups. And while Boston won the first game in Fenway Park against the Yankees, they did lose the 100 years game. But it was still an amazing experience to go and see, especially with the throwback uniforms and all that. Um, it brings me back. Yeah, that must have been – that's really cool. And the ticket, the laminated ticket is really a very cool piece, and especially to be part of, like, a world record at the same time is pretty cool. Uh, and then, Matt, you got any more memorabilia? Are we moving on to the, to the next part? That's all I have for now, at least. Hopefully I'll get more in the near future. And we'll talk about it on the Arm Barn, of course. Uh, our last trip down memory road segment here is going to be the best single game performance that we've ever seen live. And of course, mine's an Orioles one, but I only have the one, Matt. Do you, you have, multiple? I have two. I have so two. How about you start with your first one? So I'll start with probably the least, ex- less exciting of the two. And it's the best hitting performance I've seen. And on September 4th, back to the 2019 Red Sox, actually. In a 6-2 win for the Red Sox, Mookie Betts went 4-5 for five with two home runs and five RBIs against the Twins. And it was a fun game to watch because I was in center field. And he hit, in his first two at-bats, he hit two home runs right over the green monster. And me and my friends were freaking out for the rest of the game. And it was just and interesting to see, to see, like, the first one was off Jose Barrios. So, like, it wasn't like the Twins were throwing out their – worst pitchers but they're both off Jose Brios actually sorry so it wasn't like it was a terrible pitcher that they were throwing out it was a competitive game and it was just he had a he had himself a day yeah you got you're telling me two bombs off of Barrios in the same day is an impressive feat and so with mine obviously I mentioned it's an Orioles game it's a it's an August 18th, 2017 game against the Angels. Like I mentioned, I've seen Mike Trout a few times. I've seen Pujols a few times, obviously with the Angels. not. I never got the courtesy to get to see Pujols hitting bomb after bomb in St. Louis. But in a game with Trout hitting a home run, with Pujols hitting a home run, it wasn't either of them that had the greatest performance that I've ever seen live. It was, again, Manny Machado, who in this game 
went three for five, three runs scored, and seven RBIs. And so the way the game started off was pretty pretty poor for the Orioles. They gave up three runs in the top of the first, two more in the top of the second. And then the entire world just flipped on itself as Manny Machado hit his first home run of the game off of Andrew Heaney in the third. There was one man on, so it was a two-run bomb. Then in the fifth, he comes out, nobody on, hits another bomb to put the Orioles within striking distance, made that game a five to seven ball game. No runs were scored the, the rest of the game until the ninth inning when Manny Machado comes up with the bases loaded off against Keenan Middleton with one out in the bottom of the ninth inning. And Machado sends a walk-off grand slam over the center field wall. And I, of course, sitting in my favorite seats in the house, the upper deck and left field at Camden Yards, saw each and every one of that home run, each and every home run of that three home run game, cap it off with a walk-off grand slam. I still have the video on my, saved in my Snapchat memories because, oh my gosh, was it just so cool to see one of the greatest performances I've ever seen live. And one of the greater performances you can honestly hope to see live a three home run, seven RBI game with a walk-off grand slam. That's a performance. Yeah. And as a, to moving on to my final single game performance or yeah, single game player, it's only proper that it's a pitcher as a pitcher myself. And obviously on the arm barn podcast, but on August 23rd of 2017, my family decided to go see the Pittsburgh Pirates play the Los Angeles Dodgers. Just five days after the Machado Machado performance. Now, this is one of – probably it is the best performance I've ever seen, and it's never going to go down in history by the way it ended. The final score of this game was one to nothing in the bottom of the 10th. Josh Harrison hit a walk-off home run off of Rich Hill who had started the game. Rich Hill went eight innings of perfect game baseball before in the bottom of the ninth, Logan Forsythe made an error at third base botching a ground ball. So it was 0-0 going to extra innings. Rich Hill still had the perfect game, or uh, no hitter going into the 10th. Bottom 10, Josh Harrison comes up. And, of course, the one hit of the game is a walk-off home run that barely clears the left field wall. And I have the video of Josh Harrison rounding third and uh, stutter stepping home and with the fireworks going up over the river. It's, it, was an inter- it was fun to watch the Pirates hit a walk-off home run. It was also just interesting to Rich Hill. He, was, he seemed livid after the game, obviously. He allowed one hit that was a home run. In 10 innings, he had a perfect game through eight, could have had a perfect game through nine. And it could have been, it's one of those games that he could have gone down in baseball history. And it ended up getting botched by a routine ground ball third base. I mean, you've just got to blame your offense at that point. You're giving them one of the greatest pitching performances of all time, and they just can't give you the runs you need. And that's just, that's, 
that's got to be annoying from a from a pitching standpoint. I've had a no hitter going deep, and I ended up getting a loss, of course, because of one error that was made by my fielders, and especially going into the extra innings, still dealing. Your team can't score you anything, and then a, the one hit you give up being a walkout bomb. That's got to be painful. Yeah, it was. It was the most interesting game I've ever seen in my life. And I don't think anything will ever top it unless I see a perfect game get thrown, which is highly unlikely. Yeah. Not a lot of those get thrown and especially not anymore with the amount of home run or K kind of mentality that we've got and the managerial mentality of pulling your guys, even when they're dealing at Kevin Cash for pulling Blake Snell in the World Series. What? Who said that? Uh, and moving on to our next part, you were mentioning the the Pirates. And funny enough, that is actually our Rushmore for the day, one of the two. And I guess we'll just start off hot with the Pirates. And I'll, I'll go first because I tend to give you the first one, but I want to go first this time. And I feel like there's an obvious couple right here. It's Honus Wagner as the first guy that I put on. The dude played, what, 18 years for the the Pirates? Never won an MVP, weirdly enough, but led the league in batting average eight times, had a World Series title in, in 1909, a Hall of Famer, the most expensive baseball card ever sold, belongs, obviously not to him anymore, um, rest in peace, but... He is the guy on the card. That's why Honus is on the Rushmore. I don't think there's any debate. He's one of the greatest players of all time. Clear, obviously one of the best of the dead ball era. He was hitting triples and all over the place, stealing 49 bases, 53, 60 some bases a year. Like he was just that guy for such a long time. And that's why I obviously got him put him up there on the Rushmore. Yeah, adding on to some stats you said, uh, like you said, he never won an MVP, but he was a runner-up and a third-place finisher. He had a 130.8 career war, which is the highest all-time in Pirates history. He has five stolen base crowns. So he was one of the best players of the dead ball era, era, like you said. Probably the most well-known out of the dead ball era. For sure. And with a name like the Flying Dutchman, you've got to be a great ball player. One of the best nicknames in my eyes of all time. Moving on to another obvious one, I feel Roberto Clemente has got to be there too. Again, another Hall of Famer, a 12-time Gold Glover, 15-time All-Star, a World Series MVP, has two World Series under his belt, four-time batting title, and an MVP of, for the regular season, a career of 18 years uh, with with the Pirates every single year was an all-star pretty much the entirety of his career. After fifth, after 1959, he only missed one all-star game, but that year he still won a gold glove. He is one of the best players of all time, ended his career, uh, unfortunately, very shortly um, due to his tragic death, actually. Rest in peace again. Uh, but he finished his career with a perfect 3,000 hits, 240 home runs, a career war of 94.8, and a career OPS plus of 130. Not only was he one of the greatest players 
of all time. He's also one of the greatest people baseball's ever seen. I know that the yearly award, the Roberto Clemente award is given out to the best person in the major leagues. And it's named after him for a reason. You got to put him up on the, on the Rushmore for his contributions to the world, not even to baseball, but baseball also, because he was just a fantastic player. Yeah, I have him on mine as well. Um, like you said, Hall of Famer, MVP, all, 15-time All-Star, two World Series, 12 gold clubs, 40, four batting titles, 18 years with the Pirates, a World Series MVP with the Pirates. And aside from all his accomplishments on the field, I think the biggest things that he did was off the field. Not only was he an active person in the community, and like you said, the Roberto Clemente Awards named after him, but he also opened the door to a lot of Puerto Rican players to come in and play MLB, which you can see are some of the best in the league right now with Lindor and Baez, and it opened the door for a lot of those players to come in and come to the United States and play. Yeah, is not enough can really be said about Roberto Clemente, so we're not going to try and do it. Just the one of the greatest on and off the field. Moving to my next member of the Pirates Rushmore. This is where it got a little tough because the Pirates have a lot of guys that are really deserving of being up here. But another name that just comes straight to mind to me when I think of Pirates greats is Pops or Willie Stargell, one of the greatest power hitters of all time. So a Hall of Famer, again, had an MVP and two World Series, was an NLCS MVP and World Series MVP, played alongside Clemente for part of his career, played a full 21-year career where he actually won the MVP at his, in his age 39 season. Got to give Pops props for that. And he's just one of the greatest power hitters, 475 career home runs, a 282 average, 1,500 career RBIs, and a slugging percentage of 529 over his career. He's just one of the best big boppers that the game has seen in a while. It led the league in OPS a couple of years, 73 and 74. And honestly, there's a lot of years here where he didn't make the All-Star game, where he might have deserved it. But Willie Stargell going to be the next name that I throw onto my Pirates, Pittsburgh Pirates Rushmore. Yes, he was also on mine. Um, with some more stats go on for Pirates history. He's the number one all-time Pirates for home runs, where he leads number two by another 175 homers. He's all-time leader for the Pirates in RBIs, walks, um, he, extra base hits, Intentional walks, sack flies is an important stat, though obviously it's not a home run or all that, but it's still an important stat to the game. So uh, he was just one of the best he, one of the best hitters in Pirates history. Oh, for sure. And speaking of some of the best hitters in Pirates history, my last name on my list is, gave me a little bit of, a, of, of trouble because – as I said earlier, there's a lot of names that deserve to be on this list. So I was having trouble narrowing it down. But I finally got to the point where I was just going with a guy whose game matches exactly what I think baseball should be. And that is Ralph Kiner. 
a left fielder and first baseman, a great right-handed bat, finished his career with 369 home runs, only finished his career with 1,400 hits, but a 279 batting average because he did only play in the MLB for 10 years, but the majority of it with the Pirates, eight years. He's top 10 all-time for the Pirates in war, a Hall of Famer, six-time All-Star. His number is retired by the Pirates, the number four. And you just can't say enough about how good this guy was at the plate. A career on base percentage of nearly 400, a career OPS plus of 149, 49 better than the league average, so to say. But year in, year out, he was getting 100 walks plus and 40 plus bombs in the years between 1947 and 1951, his lowest home run total was 40 and his lowest walk total was 98. His on-base percentage in those years only dipped below 400 once. It's just an uncanny ability. He had a fantastic eye, but could also drive the ball out of the ballpark. 120 RBIs plus in, a, in I believe, four seasons. It's just, you can't say enough about how good of a hitter he was. Obviously, there's a bunch of names that deserve to be on this Rushmore, so it's tough to decide between them. But I had to put Ralph Kiner on mine. So for me, Ralph Kiner was my immediate fourth thought. But as I was diving deeper into some numbers and some awards, I didn't even have him as my fourth or my honorable mention. But I did want to give him a special shout-out. Uh, like you said, he led the league in home or he was eight years in Pittsburgh, six time all-star. He led the league in home runs every year he played with the pirates. So I'd like to give him a shout out, but he was not my fourth. I don't know if you want to go to your honorable mention before I go with my fourth honorable mention, but. Well, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll finish off my list. Why not? Um, I have another outfielder, one of the best of all time, another hall of famer, of course, because the pirates have so many of them another MVP, four-time All-Star and three-time batting title winner, Paul Wehner, the Big Poison, was his nickname back in his day. He played a very long 20-year career, the majority of it 15 years being with the Pirates. He had 109 home runs with the Pirates in 15 years, but again, he played in the dead ball era, won the MVP his second, his second season in the MLB with a 380 average, 131 RBIs, led the league in triples both of his first two years with 22 and 18. In his MVP season, had the most hits in the MLB with 237. He was hitting 40-plus doubles. He actually had 62 doubles with the Pirates in 1932. And it was really between him and Ralph Kiner to put on my Rushmore. But I had to give Kiner just a little bit of an edge in my eyes, but Paul Wehner obviously deserves to be on this list. And that's why he's my honorable mention for today. So mine's interesting. I actually don't have either your fourth or your honorable mention as my fourth or honorable mention. So to finish off my Mount Rushmore, while he's not really known as a pirate, he had really good ears there. And that is Barry Bonds. He came up with the Pirates, was drafted in the first round of 1985. He had a seven-year career there, 
two MVPs, three gold gloves, three silver sluggers, was an MVP runner-up. And in those seven years, he had 176 home runs, 556 RBIs, and had 251 stolen bases. He stole half his career bases pretty much in Pittsburgh, even though he only played a third of his career there. He had his best fielding seasons there. He was the most complete player of his career when he was in Pittsburgh. So I had to give him the shout-out for what he did in Pittsburgh, even though it was shorter than what he did in San Fran. And I I understand the putting the putting bonds on there. Obviously, I was I'm not the biggest fan of him because of his PED usage, but I can't deny the game. His game was fantastic. And with the Pirates, he was really just such a good, complete player. And not enough can be said about his talent on the field. And I honestly, I, I, I obviously couldn't put him on my Rushmore, not because of any off the field issues, but it's just because I think of him more as a giant, which is why I didn't even, obviously the thought crossed my mind, but because he's a giant in my head, I wasn't going to put him on my Pirates Rushmore. And for my honorable mention, I had Bill Mazurowski. He was, he's a Hall of Famer with the Pirates. He spent 17 years in the MLB, all of them with Pittsburgh, which we love a little player, especially on Mount Rushmore's. He was a Hall of Famer, like I said, 10-time All-Star in those 17 years. He won two World Series with eight gold gloves. He was finished eighth in MVP voting in 1958. Uh, he was one of the best defensive players in Pirates history. He was a solid offensive player. And the 17 years and two World Series were put over the top for me on why he was one of the face of the Pirates. And again, with Mazeroski, just like Ralph Kiner, the number's retired. It's hanging up there in PNC Park, the number nine. And it's going to forever hang up there because he was just such a great player. And so that will conclude our Pirates Rushmore. Now we move on to a bit of a younger franchise, we'll say, in the Texas Rangers. Now, Matt, I went first for the Pirates, so I'll let you take the reins on this Rangers one. Who do you have sitting atop the great Mount Rushmore for the for the Texas Rangers. So the first player that came to mind for me is Pudge Ivan Rodriguez. He's the all-time leader in war for the Texas Rangers. He spent 13 years there and hit 217 home runs while having a slash line of 304, 341, and 488. He won an MVP this time in Texas. He was 11-time All-Star with 11 gold gloves and six silver sluggers. Just one, not only was he one of the best hitting players, but one of the best fielding players at the most demanding position on the field. Sad not, top of my Rangers much more. Not, not enough can be said about how good of a player Pudge was in, in his pretty much over the entirety of his career. Obviously his numbers fell off a little bit at the end of his career, but he played a very long one. 21 years, especially for a catcher is really unheard of at this point started his career at 19 and played for the Rangers for 13 years until the 2003 season when he went to the Marlins. But he was just so good leader. Like you said, he's the career leader in war for the Rangers organization. And he's just, 
he's so good. Another Puerto Rican player coming to the majors, thanks to Roberto Clemente, of course. And the MVP, 14 All-Stars and 13 gold gloves in his career with seven silver sluggers. Obviously, not all of them came with the Rangers, but most of them did. And he got inducted into the Hall of Fame quite recently in 2017. Just a fantastic all-around player. When I was a catcher, I wanted to be like Pudge. So that's another, that's just, it. you can't say enough of how much he deserves to be on this Rangers Rushmore. Exactly. For my second Brent Rushmore, I have the all-time offensive war leader for the Rangers. Second all-time in home runs with 321 for the Rangers. Hit a career 290 with 1,039 RBIs. He was only a two-time all-star. He had one gold glove and one silver slugger. He spent 10 years with the Rangers system, and he finished MVP for fifth in 1999, and that is Rafael Palmero. Yeah, Rafael Palmero. of course, I also know him as an Oriole, not in my lifetime, but with the Rangers, he was just so good. And obviously, he's not in the Hall of Fame because of some of the issues that we talk about a lot on the on the podcast but boy was he just so good second all time in war first in offensive war for the rangers organization it was just a great lefty bat ended his career with 569 home runs over the course of his career with over half of them coming with the rangers organization in his 10 years there a 20-year career 10 of half of which with the rangers and it's just again it's tough to argue that he shouldn't be there. So that's why he was also there on my list. My number three spent eight years with the Texas Rangers and had 199 home runs and 699 RBIs while hitting 304. He had three all-star appearances, three gold gloves, two silver sluggers, an MVP uh, third place. And it is Adrian Beltre. Yeah, Adrian Beltre, fantastic. I'll let you continue, though. What what, what were you going to say? I was going to say he was known for spending a lot of time with the Dodgers and a little bit in Seattle and Boston, but he was at his best when he was in Texas. Uh, Of course, he came to Texas in his age 32 season and finished his career there, but he came to Texas when – First year in Texas, all-star gold glove, silver slugger, 15th in MVP. Second year, all-star gold glove, MVP, MVP, third place finish. Then MVP, seventh place finish, MVP, 15th, MVP, seventh, MVP, seventh. Until his last two years, he was an MVP candidate every year in the Rangers system. I mean, he was a very complete hitter. Ended his career with the Rangers in his eight years with a 304 average with almost 200 bombs and like you said almost 700 rbis he was just so good and everybody loved his antics on the field as well him and elvis andrews were just fantastic together and another uh another guy from outside the united states he's from the dominican republic the rangers clearly have a history with some pretty good scouting outside the u.s and again beltrade Another guy that I was thinking immediately had to be on the list for me. So, of course, another guy that you and I have in common on our Rangers Mount Rushmore. Now, who's your last guy, Matt? So, for my last guy, 
there's the Rangers have four numbers retired. Ivan Rodriguez for players. Ivan Rodriguez, Adrian Beltre, Nolan Ryan, and Michael Young. Michael Young is my fourth pick. He had 13 years in Texas, seven All-Star games, gold, one Gold Glove batting title, and All-Star MVP. He leads the Rangers all time in games played, at bats, played appearances, hits, doubles, total bases, runs scored, triples, uh, singles. He's one of the best hitters. Spent, like I said, 13 years there. He bleeds the Rangers and is top in Rangers history in a lot of their stats. And like I said, retired numbers shows it all how well he was there. And weirdly enough, that is actually also my fourth player on the Rushmore. I was, I wasn't sure if we'd have the same guys, but I also did have Michael Young. He was again, a guy kind of like Corey Seager or Kyle Seager, pardon who, when I think of the team, that's the guy I think of. I think of Michael Young when I think of the Rangers. So that's obviously one of the reasons I had to put him. But the numbers don't lie. Like you said, he leads the the franchise in so many statistical categories. Played all but one of his career seasons with the Rangers. Number retired, says it all. 13 years of 301 batting average. It's just, he was so good. And his numbers retired for a reason. So that's why he's also my fourth name on the Mount Rushmore. Yeah. For my honorable mention, I considered so many people. I had Buddy Bell, Ian Kinsler. I had A-Rod considered Elvis Andrews. But I eventually went with an interesting choice and I picked Josh Hamilton. Well, he only spent six years in Texas It was six of his nine-year career. He had five All-Star games. He won an MVP. He had three Silver Sluggers, won a batting title, an ALCS MVP. was a big part of their back-to-back World Series runs, in which they unfortunately lost both. But he's hit 359 in 2010, which I'm, I'm pretty sure no player has hit above that since. He had 32 bombs that year. He's one of the best players in his prime. He had 150 bombs in Texas with 531 RBIs. Career 302 batting average in Texas. He was just a phenomenal player to watch. Yeah, he hit bombs. He hit doubles. He hit everything. And I remember him most for being the most recent player to have a four home run game against, you guessed it, the Orioles. We really love giving up a lot of huge things to different players that aren't on our team, but it is what it is. Uh, He is definitely deserving of that spot, as your honorable mentioned, but he is not mine. I have a guy that you did mention in the conversation, and that's Ian Kinsler. I have always been partial to him for a reason that I'll get to in a moment, but the numbers don't lie. I mean, Kinsler played 14 years, of course, bounced around the league a little bit at the end of his career, but eight years with the Rangers. He's top five in Rangers career war, a four-time all-star three times with the Rangers was a gold glove winner a couple of times And it was just a fantastic player. Obviously, he ended up winning the 2018 World Series, but again, not with the Rangers. And he was just such a good player. 
um, ended his career with just under 2,000 hits and 257 home runs. He was just so good, all-around player, a fantastic ranger for the majority of his career. But I actually have a funny story about him. Uh, He's the same age as my cousin, who in high school actually stole Ian Kinsler's girlfriend. So, you know, that happened. A guy from Tucson, Arizona, and it's just really, really funny. I'm pretty sure that's the right story. If it's not, I'll come back next week and check and check myself. But Ian Kinsler, just a fantastic player. Can't say enough about how much I think he deserves to be the honorable mention for the Rangers. Yeah, that's a really funny story. I mean, and he did deserve it. I really considered him over Josh Hamilton, but I don't know what it was, but Josh Hamilton was over him for me. But, yeah, he was really good in his prime with the Rangers. Like you said, 2018 World Series with my Red Sox. But he was also a big part of those back-to-back World Series runs with the Rangers. Spent time with the Rangers the same years as Josh Hamilton did, which they were a powerhouse in the AL. So, And I understand putting Hamilton over him. The MVP really just speaks numbers to how good Hamilton was, but I just had to put Kinsler in there. And with that, I believe that we are running out of time. So again, thank you all for joining and listening to The Arm Barn. And uh, actually, Happy New Year and happy belated holidays to everybody. And I guess we'll see you all next year. Oh, yeah. Thank you for listening to The Arm Barn. Like, like as we said, Happy New Year, happy belated holidays. Uh, make sure to follow The Arm Barn Pod on Twitter and Instagram to stay up to date and see graphics about this episode. Thank you again and goodbye.